I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Pilsen Community Books and another taping of I-94. Please give it up for our author. I'm holding her book in my hot little hand, which you cannot see due to the magic of radio, <laughs> the medium of 1974. Mm-hmm. Give it up for Megan Stillstrom. Thank you. Megan is the author of, in fact, not one, but two, but probably more books than these two, but I've got two right here. Personal Essays, Once I Was Cool, as featured in the Best American Essays 2013. You know, they don't just take anybody for that book. I was rejected. Uh, and uh, The Wrong Way to Save Your Life, <laughs> also also by her. Megan, it's, it's a delight to have you here. Thank you for uh, having me. Megan, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a local Chicago author. We love having local Chicago authors on this show. And I wanted to start off because these are personal essays, and our paths actually have crossed at a, a notorious uh, Wicker Park bar, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Megan, let's start at the beginning. How did you get interested in writing personal essays? It's a form that um, obviously Montaigne made famous, and I think most of us, when we write intensely personal stuff, look to him for inspiration, but it's also something that uh, is very uncomfortable. It's something that when you write it, it makes you uncomfortable, probably. I know that when family members read it, uh, it probably makes them uncomfortable. And there's a there's a lack of comfort and a, a I think, a demand on the reader to expect discomfort when they learn personal, very personal things about you, such as your sex life, things that have gone bad in your life, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I think that is, of course, what makes the form very riveting. But it's a, it's a distinct choice that an author has to make because um, a lot of times, uh, and I'm speaking you know, as kind of a semi-writer myself, you know, sometimes we go into fiction because we, we want to write truth but come about it from a different way. Sometimes we write nonfiction. We've had a lot of guys in the show that do histories and stuff mm-hmm. like that, and that's another way to get at truth. Mm-hmm. But this is a very distinct and, and, also, and very kind of um, deep, uh, deeply human way to do it. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to do this particular form of writing? Um, I'm going to go way over here to answer that question, and then I'm going to bring it back around. So just roll with me for a minute. But so in, in high school, I was one of those, uh, I think, special kind of geeks who would cut class in order to hang out in the library. Maybe some of you are. Wow, some of you are my, my people. Never heard of that. Right. Um, and so I, I would sit there. And it par- partially, it was a coping mechanism, right? Because my father was the principal, which brings its all, all sorts of other stories and, you know, like people threatening to shave my head. And then, you know, you, if your dad's the principal, you can't you can't smoke weed out back, which is really like, why do we go to high school if yeah, not for that? And um, that's why I skipped. Right. And yeah. so my father was the AP Humanities teacher. Teacher, so, so you see, and my we mother see each was other. the HP geography teacher. Right, okay. So you see, yeah, you, you, you understand. Yeah. But anyway, so I would go in the library and I would sit on the floor and I would read all of these books and um, and the kind of the, 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 the lightning bolt sort of ton of bricks moment for me, I was reading uh, Black Boy by Richard Wright. It's a memoir. And there's this scene in chapter 13 where he is sitting on the floor of a library and he is reading, he's, I think he's reading a book by Dreiser. And so, so this is an African-American man, an adult man in the, the Jim Crow South. So he's reading this novel by a, uh, a white writer and he talks about how the, the novel let him get into the mind of someone who was different from him. And it was this huge like meta moment. Like here I was, this 16-year-old girl in a very small sheltered um, white town in Southeast Michigan. And I'm, I'm kind of having this, like, the, like the, this connective experience with this man in in the the Jim Crow South, and it really blew my mind. And um, I think that, that that was sort of the moment that the the world cracked open for me a little bit. And and 
and I wanted to know how to do that. I wanted to I wanted to learn how to write and, and make connections the, the way that he was doing. So so I had a few false starts, but I ended up uh, coming to Chicago in 1995 uh, to study fiction. So the fiction is where I started with all of this. And I think that really contributes a lot to why I write personal essays is because my first training was in uh, scene construction, character development, place description, uh, tension building, right? Like all these craft tools of, of fiction and storytelling. Um, so I went to, to undergrad to learn how to write like that. I went to graduate school to learn how to teach that way. I studied arts education. Um, and I paid for all of that college because this stuff is expensive, right? Uh, waiting tables and tending bar. Uh, mostly in Wicker Park, like between 1995 to 2005. I worked at the Bonga Room, which is a brunch restaurant. They have a lot of locations right now. And to this day, people stop me on the street and they're like, oh my God, I know you. And I'm like, I know. Well, like I, I wrote these, these books. And they're like, no, you served me pancakes. <laughs> like in 1998, or you made my Bloody Marys. And what was in those Bloody Marys? And like on the train, people come up to me and they want to know the Bloody Mary recipe because it's very... In their you know. defense, so those white chocolate pretzel pancakes at the I Bongo know. Room. People, people asked me if there's uh, if if they put cocaine in them because like people would just <laughs> yeah, come back and come back and come back. <laughs> um, I thought it was morphine actually. Yeah, well, I mean, who who know? I I can the the owners and the chef to this day are, are dear friends of mine, and I can hear John like, don't say that there's cocaine in my food. What are you <laughs> what are you doing? But it is just incredible food. Anyway, so I would be there behind the bar, and I'm I'm making mimosas. I'm making Bloody Marys. And, you know, I, I think I have some bartenders on the mic with me r- right now. And, and you know that, that so much of that work is listening to stories. So it was kind of this really interesting experience where, where I started noticing that the same techniques that people were using to tell me stories were the same techniques of storytelling that I was reading with Richard Wright and Kafka and Joan Didion and, and Toni Morrison and all these writers who I loved. Um, and I could start tracing back, um, like... Uh, direct address and repetition and, um, uh, and you know, so really what are the connections between oral storytelling and written storytelling? So I ended up signing up with a, a Chicago storytelling collective called Second Story. Um, and uh, so we tell stories in restaurants and bars around the city and I worked with our education arm. So it was uh, uh, helping support people in telling their own stories even if they didn't have any of that kind of writing or performance background. So it was there that I really got into personal essays. Uh, because specifically, that that's what Second Story was about, was telling true stories about yourself, the same way that you would tell them to friends over wine or coffee. Or Are they still around? They are, yeah. Okay. yeah. They're, I mean, when we started it, there were four or five of us in a basement, and now it's a company of 60 people, and they do three or four shows a month, and they travel around. I'm, I'm less involved than I, was, than, I was, than I was back then. But that was a huge part of it for me, was... Um, was listening to all of these stories of other people. Uh, and so really the first time the word essay was ever attached to my name was when I got the email saying that one of these pieces had been selected for the Best American Essays. And then I was like, essay, whoa. Because I'd always use the word story. Uh, and, you know, we can dig into the, you know, the great, diff- you know, there are all sorts of purists who will fight about the, the differences of that. But, um, but for me, it has a lot to do with, with craft, I think. So... Anyway, that's how I first got into to personal essays. Well, did, and I did want to go back a little bit to yeah, 1995 please. in Chicago. Sure, I, yeah. Um, I moved. I moved here on Cinco de Mayo, uh, 1995, and I lived over in what they used to call Dog Patch, a mm-hmm. um, little bit east of Ashland. And um, that was the year of the heat wave. 
And yes, I did not move here to go to school. I moved here to party my brains out. And uh-huh. um, we have two bartenders and two recovering alcoholics on the panel. So <laughs> we have lots of stories. Yeah. And um, But, uh, you know, Jamie and I talked about this on the show a lot mm-hmm. about, you know, Chicago is constantly in the eyes of the press and the media, particularly the right-wing media, being this, like, crime-infested cesspool when I think you guys can vouch for, you know, I think the 90s were considerably worse than it is now. Um, You know, I think 94, the year before I moved here, there was a 1,000 murders that year. Um, And I just, you know, the whole dynamic of the city has shifted in the 23 years that I've been here. The South Loop didn't exist back then. If you went south of Roosevelt on Michigan, it was like no man's land. Um, And I just... Wanted to touch on that a little bit because I, I, I know you, in one of your essays you talked about apartment on Augusta and Western and I used to live over that way. And it was just there was a different kind of vibe in the city than like every time you walked out, you never really knew what you were going to get into, you know. Um, and I will also acknowledge, too, I had substance abuse problems. So I often went places that I probably shouldn't have been. So different things would happen. But I was wondering if you felt the same way about um, the way the city feels now as it did then. Mm-hmm. And um, and the levels of safety and things like that. I'm just curious what your yeah. opinion is because we came up at the different same time. Sure, sure. Well, I, I think the I think all of that depends on the the body that you live in, right? I I, I think that there are different answers for those questions um, based on the neighborhoods that you're in and your race and your gender and uh, and your faith. And and I think that that's true everywhere, not just of here. You know, I I, I toured this book a lot this year and and. Um, and I, I'm going to borrow the words here of, a, of the, the novelist Chimamanda Adichie. She, she has a wonderful lecture called "The Danger of a Single Story" that I would that I would recommend for everyone. But there's certainly right now um, a single story about our city um, in the media, and um, and I the thing that alarms me is is that it's just the one thing that's being told over and over and over, and they 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 talk about our violence, but not the the systemic racism that has caused that violence. They talk about our violence, but not what local organizers and um, community members are doing to fight the violence. They talk about our violence, but not our resilience. They talk about our violence and not our our joy. And and so I think um, if you want to know this city, you have to read all of us and you have to listen to all of our music. You have to listen listen to multiple different voices coming from multiple different bodies. so I think you and I had a very specific experience growing up, not growing up, but you know, like Kinda. being, you know, like like <laughs> being, you know, in our late teens, twenties, you know, um, uh, late nineties, early aughts in Wicker Park, Ukrainian Village. Um, that was one very particular scene at, at that time. I, I mentioned this earlier, but right now I'm I'm reading a, a galley of Jessica Hopper's new book, Night Moves, which really kind of outlines that period. You know, like everybody's going to the double door to hear all kinds of crazy bands and i thought she was considerably younger she i i think the book starts in 2002 i could be yeah so like a a little bit you know but still still the the early aughts it still felt really real to me um not i mean of course it real but i mean real as in oh my god i was there for that (laughs) i I was there for that moment right i was in the i I walk in those bars and and again that that, that's a, a thing that i get from Chicagoans who have read the the book is oh I was at Urbis Orbis and I was at Rainbow and I was at um, Earwax and you know all, all these places where 
we Mike spent the money that we did not have at all. Yeah. About earwax because yeah. he didn't know what it was because he's young. But uh, yeah. um, that's where all like all of our that's where we watched movies for, like that. I didn't know what Blockbuster was for the longest time. But I mean, ear, earwax is where I got is where I got everything. They had the video store upstairs and yeah. the record right. store. Yeah. You could get all the weird yeah, movies that, up there. Yeah. Which is it, it was your, it was your library for... I apologize for cutting you off. No, 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 no worries. No, I think that's interesting. I, I want to stick on this for a second because a lot of these stories are about a very particular point in time in Chicago. And yeah. I think for people that... Um, there's, a, there's an interesting film, an indie rock film called You Weren't There about uh, the punk rock scene in Chicago in the 90s. Mm-hmm that a lot of people say they were there for, but actually weren't. And you know they weren't there because when you went to these shows, there was no one actually there. So, you know, I I used to go to the Fireside Bowl and the Double Door and all these places, and they were empty. Um, And Megan and I actually um, have known each other in passing um, from the Rainbow, where I used to hang out at because it was down the street from me. And uh, Dee and and Andy, Andy I think is still there attending bar, actually. Mm -hmm. But it was a a hangout around the block from uh, an ex-girlfriend of mine's, uh, Mm -hmm. Lisa Fishering. She owned a big, crumbling Victorian Mm -hmm. on Hoyne, one of these giant uh, red brick mansions. And what was interesting to me reading this book is it reminded me very much because there was a very specific time in Chicago where you could be an artist or a... In uh, Lisa's case, she was an interior designer. She owned a place called Whizbang, which was on... Oh, uh, I remember Whizbang. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... She bought this crumbling mansion for about thirty thousand dollars, and she was yeah, she was living in it. Yeah, you know, see what I'm saying? So uh, remember our no swearing policy. Sorry, uh, yeah, yeah. you can say Jesus. Though. You can say Jesus that. Is, it's, it's totally fine. He's the Lord. Uh, right. Thank you. Okay. However, thank you. Uh, well, not to us Jews, but that Mike and I. I think you just, just, oh, yeah, I I think you just saw the look on my face, and then I was leading towards. <laughs> totally joking. Other, totally other joking. Other yeah. But but one of the things that that struck me, and uh, especially about your your experience in Augustine Western with with your housemate. Uh, Pete, I think his name was, who never wore a shirt and was always wearing pants and was painting. The moody artist? Uh, yes, the artist. Andy yeah. Lesnippy Hold the Living Corpse, which I haven't thought about that band in forever. I, read that, I was, that was laughing because I know corpse. one of the guys yeah. in that band. Uh, He's still here. It was a very peculiar time because um, when I moved here, it was very obvious to people who were not from Chicago that Chicago did have a scene. There were bands that were playing. Uh, Big Black was from here. And I was a huge, when I was mm-hmm. getting out of college, I was an enormous fan of Steve Albini and Big Black. Mm-hmm. And then I met him, and he was this nerdy guy with glasses. And I was like, oh, you're super nice. It's really nice to meet you. And you're not like this guitar god superhero that I imagined you were from my bedsit in New York City. Or, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins were here, and they were mm-hmm. blowing up, and they were playing all the time. Jesus Lizard was my... Jesus uh, Lizard, of course. Yeah, David Yao, who was totally crazy. You know? Super quick sidebar. I opened for them a couple of years ago when their book came out. And I, oh. I thought that I was just gonna just like drool all over was the that stage. Was the empty bottle? Yes. Reading? yes. Yeah, empty know. bottle is a hard place to do a reading. Sidebar. Okay, yes. back to you. Go. Empty bottle is a very hard place to do. Well, a Jesus Lizard is. These guys can attest they're my favorite band of all time, and I talk about them all the time, and I go see them every time they play. So yes, I'm, you were I'm at little, the book release. I right? couldn't go to that. Uh, I was yeah. out of town when it happened, but I do own the book, so I'll yeah. put yours next to. Didn't it. that lead singer kiss a friend of yours' wife randomly? Yes, on the mouth. David. Yeah. 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 Oh, was it? Was it January? He, he actually shoved his tongue into her mouth. Yeah. Didn't yeah. didn't know her. Yeah. yeah. Is that January? If you are listening yes. right now, yes. don't do that. Yeah. Don't ever do that. Yeah. Okay. He was. Uh, January. January's company who sponsors this book show, Jackalope Coffee. We should probably. Uh, we'll stop with the David Yao story. <laughs> let's go back to. Let's go back to Megan's best back. front man. He, of in rock and roll history. He Look was. up some wow. Jesus Lizard okay. videos That's from the nineties. Bold statement. But it's a bold statement. But. Uh, Getting back to actually the book that we're here to talk about, as opposed to an indie rock band that we all admire, one of the things that that struck me was um, 
reading the book, I remember uh, how brutally hot the summers were in the years you were talking about. And the winters. And I thought, yes, yes. And I thought you did a really interesting job, and it was very evocative of the kind of overall climate of Chicago in that period when a bunch of us had moved here. And it, I moved here from New York, and when I moved here, um, I tell people this and they don't believe me, but I was paying $1,200 a month. And I moved here to an apartment that was three fifty, and immediately I was twice as wealthy as I was. I mean, it was an enormous life change. Yeah. I'm not joking, guys. My first apartment was three fifty in Wicker Park, two bedrooms. Yeah, so, I had yeah. a two bedroom too. So it, it totally changed my. I literally, I'm not joking. I went from like scrounging like ramen to like eating out every night if I wanted to. It yeah. was a total yeah. Chicago life change. That's, so that is so true. That yeah. is so true. Like our place was five hundred bucks, and there were three of us there. And, and you know, and and I just think that the, so much of the the way that we lived then and the way that we were able to to make art and try things and experiment, I don't think that would be possible. That's now. actually what yeah. I wanted to get at with you because yeah. you also had a long career where, where you were teaching and you were teaching yeah. art and you were teaching writing. Yeah, I still am. And yeah. that, that kind of was actually what I wanted to go down the, mm-hmm. the path of for a second because mm-hmm. there was a period in this city and, and it's disappearing. There are still some places I would say it's disappearing here in Pilsen, unfortunately. Maybe Little Village, maybe Bridgeport, though Bridgeport has exploded recently. Bridgeport was very inexpensive. There's not many places where you can get together and talk and fight through a lot of the things that you need to do to write and make art. And, and people laugh when you say this, but the truth is when you're doing something, most of the time what you're doing is crap. And it takes a lot of discussion and a lot of work to actually turn crap into something good mm-hmm. and anybody who does art or anybody who's music knows this you, you have to perform pieces you have to edit them you have to work on them and it's mm-hmm. it's very uncomfortable so that was actually what i wanted to ask you about being also a teacher mm-hmm. have you found that it's harder now to get time to write are you finding your students are having a more difficulty to write as the things that we took for granted when we moved here have, have completely evaporated and changed mm-hmm. well, Yes, and 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 I I think that you know part of that is that, I mean, we we have I mean as time passes, of course, time is a construct; it doesn't exist. But we're I mean we're we're older now too, you know. So so my the the things that are you know that I'm dealing with with my time are you know I have a kid, I have, I have a full time job, right? So, um, so these are things that are are taking up time now, and um, and affecting the time to write where um where I think back then I was able to we were able to to live off of a couple of bar shifts a week right I I I think um another big part of that I I think also teaching for me is is college tuition was a, a fraction of what it is now right so I was able to pay off my loans selling pancakes uh I was able to pay out-of-pocket health insurance selling pancakes oh, two or three times a week. I was able to um, write and not have to worry about selling that writing. I was able to, to take teaching artist positions that paid low money and really l- learn how to be an educator and, and, um, and, and one that mattered. I, I, I think that we can all like do a show of hands of, of who's had a not great teacher in their life I I'm not interested in being that and I I think that 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 takes time and study and experience and learning and listening and and I was able to do all of those things at that particular time in Chicago and I don't know if that exists anymore for all sorts of different things in in part because rent is going up in part because cost of living is going up in part because of the travesty that is health insurance right now in this country in part because of the the 
just astronomical cost of college tuition, um, which just frustrates me to to no end. What I what I see these young writers that I'm I'm working with, um, what they're mortgaging away to try to make work. Um, that's another reason why I think our bookstores are so important and our libraries in the city are so important um, because not everybody can put down the cash that you need to take that that you need to, to spend to, to take a writing class. So I think in part it's the whole, it's everything changing. I also think like when we're talking about different neighborhoods where we could have lived or can still live in Chicago right now, I, I think it's really tricky to get into that conversation without talking about gentrification. Um, and I, this is a thing that I think about a lot. Like, I, I mean, when we were in Wicker Park in, in the 1990s, we were part of that. I mean, we were Absolutely. white people moving in into the city. Then I went to Square. Yeah, so, so I, I think, um, you know, and I, I think I say this in the book, I was too young and too dumb to understand at the time really what I was, um, what I was a part of in that in that time. So, so whenever I, so whenever I talk about like, God, it was so cheap back in the day, like, like now I have the understanding behind me to really think about, to, to really think about what that meant and how it might've been less expensive for me pulling in a whole bunch of, I mean, I I know I keep coming back to these pancakes, but I would walk out of that restaurant with 300 bucks in my pocket at at four o'clock in the afternoon. Right. And problematically for me, my epic books moved in next door. So then I'd walk out of Bonga Room and then I walk right into my epic books and then I would have $250 in my pocket instead of three. But, but whatever. I, um, I, I, I can't talk about how easy it is, how easy it was then without, without seeing the greater picture, right? And, and I think that that makes me, now that you know I'm in my early 40s now, like it, it makes me a lot more thoughtful about action and how I can be a part of making things better. Do you think they have to exist hand in hand, you know, for, for that opportunity to be available for people to, to live cheaply? Do you think it has to be at somebody's expense? I, no, no. I think that we have to imagine better have options. You, have you seen that this reality? Is a good question. Um, that's a really good question. I, I think I'm, you know, question of city planners across. The yeah, country, yeah, no, no, no. It's true. It's true. I, I live in Rogers Park now. Yeah, and it's, um, and it's certainly the most diverse community that I've ever, that I've ever lived in 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 the city, um, and, but it's also much more residential and uh, like older families than it, is, you know, than it is a bunch of twenty year olds running around with you know the the rock bands like i felt like i was living when i were was there yeah, co-ops back park, in the day where did a lot of people do co-op living in wicker park actually near yeah. dog patch yeah, but yeah. um it's for the there's that senior building on division it's a little bit mm-hmm. south oh, yeah. of milwaukee there's a co-op over there um i want to talk about um i think in your writing there's a fair, you do a really and it's probably because i grew up in these times but you have a really good way of putting us in a certain time place and one of the things you talk about is a fisher price uh turntable um for those of you and i didn't know this but according to your essay they still sell them they do uh they were red with a yellow arm and i i remember i had a through z sesame street sammy the snake looks like a letter s and i used to listen to those on my that was like my first 
you know, and then when I got older, I'd start getting seven inches. Do you but, all remember that record player, right? Like that little, what, like, okay. The right. young people there's some, in the front are like, no. <laughs> They're like, you guys are old. We can totally, hook, uh, I've got a computer in my pocket. I can show you the image, search it, break. However, what I wanted to go into yes, next was yes. the Dachshund attack. Mm. Um, Lenny's Dachshund. It, um, yeah. So you were dancing with a young man, um, and yeah. you thought his name might be Lenny Kravitz, but we're not sure yeah. because there was a musician named Lenny Kravitz, as yeah. you explain in your writing, but then... Yeah. He had a dachshund. Uh, we were dancing to some album, that little kid frenzy of jumping and thrashing. His dog must have thought he was in danger. Its muscle curled, the growl and snarl before it jumped. The bottom teeth caught me under the chin, the top just below my ear. Um, which I also had, got a, had a dog attack my face when I was a child. I had kneeled on its tail and it had been run over. Okay. And it was they couldn't like put a cast on it because yeah. it was a dog tail. And he like just tore the side of my face off mm-hmm. and I uh the reason I'm bringing this up though is you said I don't remember pain although the look on my mother's face made me clear there was plenty of both and mm. well I, I I liked how you there was a segue between this record player and this dog attack and you, your very your recollection of the record player is very vivid mm-hmm. and this dog attack you don't remember the pain you just remember your mom being upset and mm-hmm. that I have these things too um one thing that I think of all the time, there used to be this evil Knievel, and you crank it, go, rah, 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 and then it would like do a wheelie and take off across your house. Yeah, Jamie awesome. probably remembers yeah. it. Yeah. Every kid had one of those. And that, I've, Every kid from like born in like 66 no, or whatever yeah. had one. Not, yeah. I could describe that thing to you. Like I could write a five-page essay about that thing, but I can't remember what I did five minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. so it's interesting how we have these, you know, and I'm sure this dachshund tearing your face off also was very, <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. like, I don't know if we compartmentize trauma, but I mm-hmm. thought that was important to bring up because mm-hmm. um, I, I can see the connections to certain things, but then other things we disregard in our memory. Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, certainly when you when you deal in personal essay or, or memoir work, I mean, you're, it's, it's you interrogating, you're interrogating your own memory and the, and the way that you see, the way that you see stories and the way that you've built your own life. And it's interesting to me, like to, to kind of to try to figure out, well, what, what memory is actually mine and what is in my head because I've heard my parents tell the story so many times, or I've seen a photograph or I've, you know, or I've read all about the development of my hometown, you know, years later in my research. So now I think that's actually part of my memory, right? At a, at an interesting moment with, um, with my father, and there, there's an essay in the book about him. Um, he has a heart problems. He's a he's a big game hunter now in Alaska, and he has these heart problems. But he keeps running up mountains for several weeks at a time, hunting moose. And it, this is very bizarre. And then he almost died one time, and then I freaked out, and he kept going up mountains. And so I started dissecting deer hearts, and he would send me frozen deer hearts in the mail. And then it's it's, it's in the book. It, it makes sense. It makes sense. It, did, it didn't make sense at the time, but hopefully it made sense by the end. Anyhow, I sent him, he was the second person I sent the, that essay to, to make sure that it was okay, right? Because I told a lot of personal things about our relationship and about him. And um, Did he comment like once, are you going to write about this when you were having a conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. um, I, you know, I, my kind of MO with this stuff is I tell everybody who I'm writing about that I'm writing about them. And it, interestingly, the, the Chicago Reader did a, a cover story on me when the book came out, and they asked 
15 different people who I wrote about to each write 500 words about what it felt like to be written about by me. Ooh. Oh, so I you, read that. So yeah. you can go read that. They asked my father. They asked my, like we, we lost a condo during the recession. I want to read your husband's. They asked our realtor. They asked my husband. Yep. Um, they asked my child who was nine and he wrote a little <laughs> thing which made me cry. Um, but anyway, uh, when my dad first read the, the draft, he, he called me and he said, is there still time to change things? And I was like, oh no, what did I, what did I say that made him upset? And he was like, on page 40, you have me carrying a kind of gun that I would use to kill a moose, but you have me trying to kill a partridge. <laughs> and on page 50, you have the kind, you have the wrong kind of uh, heating system in my boat. And you ha- and I, I was like, okay, I have to call you back. I have to process this. And but it comes back to that memory question because the. I, I think even if 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 I was writing fiction about him, I the those specific details, like writing fiction from the point of view of an Alaskan hunter, right? Those details would have needed to be very precise. Right. But a piece from my memory about his, the memory of his Chicago daughter who was terrified of him dying and imagining him out on a mountain hunting. I was being honest to my memory. So I, I think that that's an interesting question when you're writing nonfiction, right? Is, like, is this... Mem- I mean, I, I, I write about Chicago politics for the, for the the New York Times, and I better darn well be... Did you just... Did you see how I just fixed my darn... Done, t- well done, um, I, I, I better darn well be very precise with the factual details that I use in that place, right? So, so I care a lot about the particular contract with the audience. Like you, if you come to my work in the New York Times, like that, well, and the New York Times has all sorts of problems right now too, but, but whatever. Like if you come to that work, um, the contract with the audience is that this is true, this is fact-checked. Um, if you come to my work in my book, I think I say on page three, hey, I've been known to exaggerate all sorts of crazy stuff. I come up through bars, so w- welcome to my stuff. Like I'm, I'm pretty transparent about that. So my objective in this book was to be true to my memory. Anyway, I called my dad back and I was like, look, I will change those details because I don't want you to read an essay about how much I love you and wince, but I want you to know that you are wrong and I am right. Because in the same way that you have lived hunting for decades, I have lived memoir writing and craft. And this is all of my research and all of and I've been teaching it now for 20 years. So you're wrong, but I'll still change it. I'll still fix it. On that note, it is time for us to take a quick break. Please give it up for Megan Steelstrom. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to Lumpin' Radio. This is I-94. We are in conversation at Pills and Community Books with the author of the two books you cannot see because it's radio, not television. <laughs> Once I was cool, the wrong way to save your life. We're here with the author, Megan Steelstrom. Give it up for her, please, one more time. Hey, so before the break, we were talking about an essay that you wrote about your father. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was actually one of the essays I I really enjoyed in the book, Mm -hmm. particularly because I enjoy the image of somebody dissecting frozen deer hearts in their kitchen. Uh, That was a good image, something I really enjoyed. Yes, what, about 20 of them? Well, he refused. I thought it was going to be this great educational thing that he and I were going to do. Mm-hmm. But he He's was like, like, why, oh, why no, would we do that? Why, this is so weird. <laughs> mm. I mean, it is kind of weird. It is, we- it is weird. It is kind of weird. It is. But it's usually yeah. cool for an eight-year-old boy. I thought right. it would be. Right, right. I, I don't know. Dissecting, I, I, I didn't yeah. like dissecting anything when I was no. eight years Maybe old. Maybe it's just yeah. me. 
Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, Mike. <laughs> I'm, looking at, I'm looking at you saying yes, and then all these heads in here are going, no, 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 no. that's not Let's put a pin in that, Mike. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But one thing you mentioned uh, about that essay was mm-hmm. that you're, you sent it to your father to read. Yes. And he was the second person to read yes, it. Yes, he was. Who was the first person to read yes. it? Yes. Okay. Um, this, qu- this question is very important to me. So um, in part, the essay also deals with a... a school shooting. It happened in 1993 at my high school. I mentioned earlier, my, my dad was the principal. And uh, um, it, it wouldn't be fair to say that this shooting was the reason why my dad moved to Alaska uh, entirely, but that was certainly part of it. It was shortly after the shooting that he quit his job uh, in Michigan and moved to this small island in the Gulf of Alaska. And uh, so I, uh, I watched the shooting happen it was my freshman year in college. I was in Boston and um, somebody came into my dorm room and, and said, aren't you from Chelsea, Michigan? And I said, yeah. And then they said, well, your town is on the news. And I went and I watched. And so the, um, my, my science teacher, his name was Stephen Leith. Uh, he uh, opened fire on a, on a board meeting. And of course all you, you know, th- this is before cell phones. This is before Twitter. This is, this is 93. And um, you know, so you, you're not getting up to the minute news you just have to wait and I I couldn't get through to anybody and um for many hours and all they said in the newscast was that there were fatalities uh and so your imagination your imagination fills in blanks when you have an absence of information uh and often our imaginations or at least with me my imagination is not the Always the safest Kindest, place, yeah. right? Um, uh, it ended up that uh, it wasn't my father who was killed that day. It was uh, the superintendent of schools. His name was Joe Paisaki. He was a dear family friend. He had a daughter who was a year younger than, than me. <clears throat> uh, so after I finished the essay, I, for the longest time, I didn't think I could write about the shooting. I didn't think it was my story. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting subject matter when, when you're dealing in, in personal essay is, is if the absolute worst didn't happen to you, do you, are you still able to tell this story? Even if it's a story that you have carried your whole life. I mean, uh, this entirely changed my family. My, I mean, my, my father lives on the other side of the country. Uh, he's not a part in, of our, of our day to day life, much to my sadness. Um, was he in the meeting? He was not there. Okay. He's not there. Um, but uh, anyhow, um, it, it's it, I, I just a couple of days ago I, I interviewed Roxane Gay about the new anthology that that she just edited called "Not That Bad," and it's about this same question, but dealing specifically with with sexual assault, right? And how often have we heard that statement? Well, this thing happened to me, but it wasn't that bad, um, as if the thing that happened wasn't still awful and doesn't still live in our bodies and in our memories and. Anyway, so I, um, I went on Twitter. I looked up uh, the woman's name. Her name is Nicole Paisecki. Fascinatingly, is that a word? Fascinatingly? Sure. Okay. No. Um, we make up words all the time. She is also a creative, writing, uh, creative nonfiction writer. She is a creative nonfiction teacher in Denver. She has a small son near the age of my son. We've lived these kind of parallel lives. So on Twitter, I asked her for her email and then I, you know, and then I, I sent her this email, like, well, hi there. I mean, what do you say to someone you haven't spoken to in, in 20 years? And I, I sent her the copy of an essay. And I, I've, I've never given anyone else, not even 
my husband or my friends or my father, like this kind of power over my work. But I was like, okay, here's this essay. I want you to read it. If you want me to kill it, it's done. I'll put it in a drawer. It'll be gone. Like I, I don't want to rock anything. And she wrote me back just the most incredible letter. And we kind of began this sort of like online friendship. And then she wrote about her experience of the shooting and, um, and the loss of her father. And, uh, and then, so, and then we, and we, we met in Florida a couple months ago and had breakfast. And then we did this long interview for uh, Long Reads. So you can read both essays and you can read this interview on Long Reads. But oh, um, yeah, maybe I can post that on the show. Yeah, notes. yeah, That'd sure. Cool. Yeah. But it, 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 I, and I think it, and part of what, you know, what she and I talked about at that time, I mean, the Parkland shooting had just happened. Um, it was right before Santa Fe. I mean, these, you know, they're happening now every day. <laughs> I mean, they and they always have been. I mean, just social media is, is bringing them more more to the light. But, um, but it it feels very important. I, I think to to look. At, I mean, we're both now in our forties, and this is something that we experienced in '93. So, so how do these things? How do you carry these stories? And I, uh, this is the thing that is I'm most interested in in the personal essay form. Is how does it take these things that we think are statistics and um, and give them the humanity that 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 they deserve and that is true is true there there are there are real lives and real people at, involved in these stories so um so that's why i sent it to her one of the things i th- i thought came up again and again throughout the essays especially when you were talking about fear mm-hmm. and um desire usually mm-hmm. to go hand in hand mm-hmm. but especially when it came to your work is this like you had these really ambitious ideas and projects. I'm thinking specifically of the the essay where you talked about having the short residency at um, in Lake Forest. Yeah, right. And you, you were gonna you were gonna finish your short stories and you were gonna start your yep. next project and like <laughs> you, you you watched True Blood and and, I watched, and you knocked out. <laughs> you slept and you. I watched like two seasons yeah. in Just, three days, and that is a lot of. Vampire sex, but <laughs> <laughs> yes, kind of kind of bad vampire sex. <laughs> Some of that vampire sex. How do you, is good how do you determine sex? if vampire sex is bad or good, Jamie? I'm just curious. Well, not to go too I'm deep. I'm leaning down the, back. Not to go too deep down the rabbit hole, but True Blood was pretty. Oh yeah. After after that, what the third season, it really kind of went off the rails there. My sister and I used to watch True Blood and talk about it back and forth. Third season was when it just got too. We're gonna have a fight. I, th- I, I was gonna say I think a, that these you are can tough hot takes here with you, Megan Steelstra. I think <laughs> we you can book me on the show again, and we can just do the True Blood show. Because I realize if I start right there now, there are books, right? If I start right now, then read the books. It's, it's not, not ever stop. gonna. It's not. It's. I have thoughts. But anyway, just, just leave us with one. Leave. What's the hot okay, take on True ahead. Blood? Mm. Uh, Pretend it's ESPN. I, just only one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, I'm just in generally speaking, I'm really into. I I, I think like everyone, I, I I don't think this is just me, but I'm really into binge watching television. I'm really interested in again coming back to storytelling. Like what what techniques can I pull from? Well, from anywhere. Like I don't care if the story is true blood I don't care if it's Tolstoy I don't care if it's something that you're telling me over a glass of wine right um I'm going to learn from how you're doing it so the the thing that I'm most interested in in binge watching television and and for me personally true blood 
was the did this the the, the greatest like like that feeling where where you say okay I'm just gonna watch one episode and then I'm gonna go do my work. But then you can't just watch one episode because it gets to the end of the episode and you're like, for the love of God, I must watch seven more right now. And it doesn't matter that I have a baby who's going to wake up in five hours. And it doesn't matter that I'm like holding, a, that I'm breastfeeding while like all this awful violence has happened. Like, I must watch this show, my God. So how? Do you want me how to sit between you that? two? Because I don't want to fight. Uh, no, 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 it's okay. Like, but but how how did they accomplish that? How was that crafted? Right? Like I I think a lot about how at the end of every episode, they, they ended every episode in the middle of a scene, like when tension was at its height was at its height. So you're talking about um, how they manipulated viewers into watching more. Absolutely. It, it's the same thing. Like the, think think about how many times you've been in a bookstore or a library and you've pulled a book off the shelf and you've read the first paragraph and then put it back. Like five times today already, right? In this I don't, bookstore, I, I don't want that to be my book. I, I want you to take, I want you to take my work and be like, oh, for the love of God, I must finish this essay. You need vampire. I sex. must right. Well, yeah, you don't have a lot of personal essays by vampires. I don't. Sex, well, I, I haven't we have personally. Sex, I have so not had sex with a vampire. It's true. <laughs> Although I do believe that dreams and fantasies and all of that are are part of the personal essay material as well. So I could, I could do that essay. I'm bringing us back up the rabbit hole. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. right. Thank you for, for doing, taking that move. So at the, at the end of the retreat, you, um, you found an entry. They had, they had little notebooks in each room and in the room that you were staying in, you found an entry from a writer that you really admired. The, the Chicago writer Koya Paz. I don't know if any of you are familiar with her work. I I was not. uh, Yeah. She, she has this poem. I'm sorry. Go ahead. This is like my fifth time interrupting this question but she has this poem and I think about it every day it's, it's called Thanksgiving poem and there's a, a section in it that says uh, um, the work is enough uh, I I wake up every day and I go to a job that I love and that is a privilege afforded to the very few and I'm wise enough now to know it I think about that line all of the time um, when I think about the kind of work that I want to do in the world anyway I'm sorry, did you just hear an orchestra behind me? God, I love her work so much. And I was in the same room. She had just been in that room. She'd just been there. And so now I'm reading her words. Okay, now back to you, go. But has she watched True Blood? I will. Right, right, right. So she had a totally similar experience to you. She, yes. she slept a lot. She watched True Blood and, yes. and got a little bit of writing done. Yeah. And I don't sleep and love True Blood, but I love my job. I'm a librarian for Chicago Public Library. Yes, Contrary you are. to popular thought. Oh, Thank you for that. I like working there. Thank you for yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but there, it's this idea of the unforeseen consequences of of not quitting, falling short of the ambition, but coming upon something unexpected. And I feel like that yeah. was a recurrent theme. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think it has a lot to do with with the the difference between what the artistic process actually is and what we think it is supposed to be. Right. Like I, th- I think we put all this pressure on ourselves. Like, well, I must write my. I must complete my first book and have it published by the time I'm 25. Okay, great. Maybe some some people, you know, some people do that. Great. You, you know, I I, I don't we mean call to, those, we hate those to, people. To, 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 <laughs> to, to, to deter that, but it might not look that it, it might not look that way for you, sure. right? And and so that's the thing that I try to be really thoughtful about. Um, is is what does this process look like? And it has looked different for me at, at different times in my life, right? It, it looks different if you have a full-time job or a part-time job or you're just working in the home. It, it looks different if you have kids or if you don't have kids. It, it looks different if you just fell in love and you just have to have sex with this person all the time and you can't write for three weeks because you have to have the beginning of this relationship. And and I, I, I don't think that our, at least for me, my, my writing can't 
it, it, it's an interesting balance between letting myself live and, um, and letting myself make work. And if I'm just locked up in a room in my own brain uh, for a long time, then I am, that is not a particularly safe, safe, safe place, right? And I think the other thing with that is, is with all of these, and, and I talk about this in the book, I didn't, at that particular residency at Ragdale, I didn't accomplish what I set out to accomplish. And I was upset with my, I was upset with myself, right? I thought I was going to get all these things done and I didn't. Um, all I got done was, was writing one very short essay about postpartum depression. Uh, it was like three pages long. And I beat myself up over just that small amount of work. But two things happened with that. One, I went home and I kept writing. And I hadn't been writing before I went there. Uh, so that time period was sort of a bridge back into to making work. And the other thing that happened was six months later, I got an email from Cheryl Strayed saying that that one small essay had been chosen for the Best American Essays. And then... I got an agent. I got two more book deals. I got a new fancy job. I started writing at the New York Times. And it, so those three pages and the beating up I did of myself, like it, if you are listening to this right now and you are trying to make work, please be gentle with yourself. Please trust yourself a little bit. Jamie, can I say the word that rhymes with Bilbo? Yes. Okay. So ba- there, you mean Baggins, what right? <laughs> is about to happen? The word is Baggins, right? Um, so there's an essay in here. I, I we were talking about this before the show about how um, up until 2008 you couldn't buy or sell a dildo in the state of Texas. It was illegal. Um, Can we just talk about the the research it takes to be a personal essayist? <laughs> um, it's very in depth research. Okay, go ahead. No problem. There's no limits to the number of guns one may own. But it was a felony to own more than six dildos in the state of Texas. Wait a minute, to uh, own more than six? Yeah. How did they come up with this number? I don't know. That's you what did, I'm talking you about. You did the research. That How did they come what, up with That is what, no, okay. but in, I am, I am, that, the tone of the essay here is, woo, yeah. WTF. <laughs> that so, is the whole. That's, that's we've talked. Yeah, that's good. We've talked about this before on the show. I have a complicated relationship with guns because I grew up with hunters as well. Mm-hmm. However, it does say in my home state of Michigan, which is also Mike and I's home state. And mine. And yours. You couldn't swear in front of women or children. And I was telling everyone at the table here, I was actually arrested for swearing in front of women and children in 1988, the day I graduated from high school, because we were all intoxicated at a public beach, and we were slam dancing and singing Drink, Fight, and Fornicate, which is not the title <laughs> by G.G. Allen at that the top of our logs. That was nice. And uh, I got arrested, and I'll never forget when my dad came to pick me up. He's like, Jeremy, he's like, you've been arrested for a lot of things, but this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. Yeah. He was like in shock, but I got locked up for it. And um, But back to the absurdity of the, the paragraph I read earlier. Mm-hmm. When you... Like I said, I have a complicated relationship with guns, but I, I, I certainly, I think it should be a, uh, by region. If you live in a city, you can't have handguns, you can't have assault rifles. Mm-hmm. Not that that would help anything, but I don't want to go into that. But what I wanted to talk about is the absurdity of laws like that where, um, you know, we have all these people that are, you know, their states' rights and small government, but whenever it comes to issues with women, 
everyone's all of a sudden really into big government. And uh, I think, you know, your essays, you know, we have, you talk about your 20s and, and kind of like your sexual, not kind of, but your, you know, your sexual awakening, uh, your relationships and things like that. And I think there's a very, um, your essays are very feminist, although they're not heavy handed. They're frank is the word you're Frank, for. yes. And uh, very, very uh, open. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. that you you reveal a lot about your uh, when you were young. But I just wanted you to talk a little bit about, is that something you think about? Um, are you like, you know, Steelster's a femis- feminist while you're writing these? Or is just just from your worldview? Or how, how did you come to a frank representation of your feminism? Uh well, I do think... Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Yes. I I think... Well, Steel, Steelstra is a, a feminist. Like, I am a, a feminist. And I, and I, 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 don't, I, I don't think about it like explicitly when I sit down to write because it, it's just who I am. I mean, it's part of how I parent and how I teach and how I write and how I walk through the world and how I drink this glass of wine and how I am talking on this microphone right now. Like, it's... Um, it's part of you. that is who part of who I am in the in the world. So so it's not a a really um, a, a thing that I, I think about. And um, but my hope is is that in sharing all these life experiences that have led me to this place, that you can see that build right. Absolutely. So so I'm interested more in like, hey, here are nine things that have happened that have made me, as opposed to saying, I am this and this is why. Da 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 da. Although I also do that too, at, at, at this point, especially at this time in the world, it, it feels very important to me to be very explicit about who I am and what I stand for and why, right? Um, I, yeah, the uh, I I t- so all the essays in the book are about fear in some sort of a way, and I f- I filed the the first draft of the manuscript in the the summer of. T- the, the summer of 2016, so right as we were in the presidential campaign at that point, and we were in the presidential campaign for 511 days. 511 wow. days is when, is when he announced his candidacy with his uh, glaring racism towards the Mexican people. 511 days from then until, 511 days, and then now we're still in it. No wonder we all want to like leap off the roof, right? Just if, if we look at that, that time period. It feels um, like an eternity. Right? Like it is never, actually 519, right? by the way. Yeah, so I, oh, right, because I, 519. Yes, well, we're taping this on day 519. Okay, okay. Um, I only anyway. know this because we do the Trump Diaries every week on Lumpen Radio. Oh, thank you. Okay. Fridays at 6.30. All right. And that's a horror. See, and now, and see, we're going to fight about true blood and math, and I love this. I love all these conversations. Okay, but so I turned in all these essays about fear right when we were in the middle of this presidential campaign, and, and fear had a very different, not a very different meaning for me, but I, I was seeing it through this whole new lens, let's say. So I asked my editor after I filed the, the book if I could write an introductory essay for it and and then I sat there for a while and I was like well I, I know that I want to talk about this particular time period about the summer of 2016 and how we felt prior to the election right um, th- there's a very specific time period in the book like I I had to pick a cutoff and I think that that's important in creative nonfiction you have to pick a cutoff point if you're writing about yourself because if not it'll just keep going and going and going because new things happen to you every day right so you 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 have to you have to pick an ending 
Um, You're saying Carl Nosgaard is is not uh, the way you want to go. I am no, not me personally. Um, so so I tried to think. Well, God, when when did I like? Well, what are all of these essays about? And one was what was a specific moment in my life that illustrated that? Right. So if if all of these essays are about, um, I believe that you know we we need to really examine and interrogate our own fear if we're going to make things better. We have to start with ourselves. And there's essays in the book about you know, uh, very internal things like uh, me dealing with whiteness and me dealing with internalized misogyny. And then there's very outward things like my building caught on fire and I had to get out with the baby in five minutes. And then, you know, what does it mean to be a woman on the internet today? And right, you know, so, so very internal and, and external. But I, I, I figured out that like the, the moment that I first started thinking about what it looked like to have to examine what's on the inside was that moment with, my old roommate Pete, who listened to Behold the Living Corpse, um, and him uh, painting the interior of our apartment black one day to kind of deal with his. And then that essay ends with everything that I, I think of Trump. So, so it's interesting because, you know, you know sometimes I, I, I find myself in spaces where I know that I'm sitting with the... 53% of white women who voted for Trump, and I am a white woman, and so I feel some responsibility to to, um, to get into these women's brains a little bit. Um, and they'll say things like, well, God, I loved your work. And I'm like, no, you didn't. You didn't read the first essay because I trashed your man. And uh, and I can, and, and let, let's, let's do this right now over this nice piece of cake that you're giving me here at this artist residency. Like, let's, let's, let's get into this. Um, one of the things that I think made me able to do this, and this comes back to the gun essay that that you brought up, um, uh, the dumb law. Well, I, I got all that information about the dildos and and don't swear in front of women from a really fascinating website called dumblaws.com. I can't recommend it enough. It's great reading. Um, but that was for a piece that I, I did for the Paper Machete, which is a live news magazine in Chicago. It's every Saturday at the Green Mill from 3 to 5. Um, and I'm a staff writer there, so I walk in and I'll, I'll do work on Gamergate. And I'll do, so, so this particular piece was about uh, the campus carry laws about letting uh, guns in on college campuses. And I, I, am on, I teach at Northwestern now. I'm on a college campus. The idea of teaching while my students pack or while I'm pa like the... I, I mean, I, I will. Are you I will. Still trying to pass that through. Teachers carrying. Yeah, yeah. Stuff. It's it, it. It. I mean, as of when I wrote it, it was legal in nine states, and it w and it was being debated in Texas, which is why I got into the dildos. And th there are bills Texas, in Texas. I can't Springfield. It. I know, for for it right now. But anyway, I I think a thing that lets me dig into some of this material is the performance community in Chicago. It's places like Second Story, it's places like the Paper Machete and another 50-60 performance places where I get to get up on a stage and I get to try this work out live and share that moment with a lot of people and I don't have to worry about my dad in Alaska reading it or my ex in New York or my kid 10 years into the future. It's just me and, and these people and the Chicago audiences are second to none. Like if I'm if I'm not pushing hard enough or going deep enough or or telling the truth, Chicago audiences let me know. Like my rewriting process is Chicago live audiences, um, and I think that it, that's let me be brave. Uh, so whether I'm talking about guns, which is not a particularly safe thing right now to do as a woman on the internet, um, or uh, I had an essay out not long ago about how the the 
the day after the election, I called my doctor and asked if uh, she could do a early uh, replacement of my IUD because I was afraid of what women's reproductive health care was going to look in 2019. I'm still very afraid of that, right? And just the the insanity of trying to to get birth control. And I am a person who, I mean, I, I have geographic access to reproductive care. Um, at this stage in my game, I can afford reproductive care. At that time, I had out-of-pocket health ins- insurance that covered it, and I still, right? So, but just, and this is back to the feminist thing, just me writing about going to the doctor, well, that's me writing about going to the doctor, which is a personal essay, but it's feminist, and it's political, and should it be? Or should I just be able to write about me going to the doctor? Or should I be able to write about me thinking my father was killed in a school shooting? Um, I think our persons, our, our, our individual person is highly political. Um, and I'm here for that conversation. With that, our conversation is actually over. We're out of time. Please give it up one more time for Megan Stillstrup. And I want to remind everybody, July 8th, Kathleen Ballou, July 19th, Cliff Dwellers at the Dial. Everybody, Pills and Community Books, give it up for yourself. You're awesome. I-94 is Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Megan Seelstra, author of the books Once I Was Cool from Curbside Splendor and The Wrong Way to Save Your Life from Harper Perennial. This episode was taped in front of a live studio audience on June 21st at Pilsen Community Books and was originally aired on June 24th, 2018. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production with readings by Shanna Van Volt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com.